Welcome to the Molding Private Practice Show, where we help healthcare practitioners in private practice keep true to their purpose and build a life of mastery by providing the knowledge, skills, and tools to bring their dreams to life. In this episode of the show, we speak to Milani Niemand, an occupational therapist, about dysgraphia. Milani Niemand, welcome to the show. So we're so glad to have you on board and talking about dysgraphia from an occupational therapist perspective. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you very much, Oliver, and um, thank you for inviting me. No, I mean, it's always our pleasure. I mean, you give us yeah, your time and, you know, we're always eternally grateful for that. Uh, but I do want to ask, how, how did you actually get on the show or how did you find out about us? So, um, I am doing your practice management software. So, the SME metrics. Mm-hmm. I started with that. Oh, I don't know how long it is now. Can it be two years? I don't know. It's flown past. Wow. <laughs> um, so, I started with doing that. And that's where, um, yeah, there's just so much other resources over there. And I didn't even realize about these podcasts that you are doing. And um, when I saw that all of that that you're doing, and that's another. That's how I was able to do to find out about that. <laughs> okay, thanks for mentioning that, and also thanks for being a client. I mean, I, I, I think whenever we do the show, it's not a you know plug for our services. I always think, you know, like my wife's a, a you know clean psych, and I always think, you know, if I was in her shoes, you know, like how would we, as a company, I would be enabled her to do her job better. So it's always with that in mind, uh, and I think the show started off. Like with everything I do, I think it started off with some weird idea, and it's like it would be nice to do that. And yeah. that's that's what I saw. It was oh wow, it's it's another service you're offering. I didn't realize it's more than it's more <laughs> than the software. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you know, like just taking this, and we spoke about the CPD points. You know, to take that and give the CPD points, you know, at like minimal cost. I think we always want to put a cost because then there's some level of, you know, like they say, no one appreciates free. We could easily do it free, but you know, like I think you know, when when there's some level of payment, you know, I think it makes it like a little bit valuable. So yeah. I think, you know, I mean, the costs for getting your CPD points every year is much more than the cost <laughs> of of doing these um of t- doing your talks, your podcasts. Mm. But um, now be, being able to just do those um, CPD points each year is a big cost for us. Yeah, exactly. And I think also, I mean, like we spoke about like the UK part. I mean, I think if we could make this, this was our first attempt, but you know, like with, with everything, it doesn't matter, you know, like cars are a good example, like how BMWs every year just, or every five years just get better and better, um, you know, like the other brands as well. I think for us, it's like the first part and then it's like getting better and better with it, you know, having much more renowned speakers, all of those kind of things. Um, yeah. So, Sorry. Aiming higher. Yeah, exactly. But I think uh, slightly off topic, but uh, coming back to the topic, dysgraphia, can you tell us what that is? So, uh, yes, dysgraphia is quite interesting. Um, A lot of people know much more about dyslexia. They've heard dyslexia, um, but they haven't heard that much about dysgraphia. And there's a couple of reasons for it. And one of the things is there's actually not that much research on dysgraphia. There's actually, it's quite difficult to find more information on it. There's been a lot of research on dyslexia, 
Um, a lot of people know about it. You can see it more easily, um, but it's not always that easy to distinguish between dyslexia and dysgraphia. So um, it's much harder to find the information. And also there's much less institutions that are able to provide you with training and information on it. So basically dysgraphia is the is difficulty with writing. So it's a learning difficulty specifically to writing. It's when a child has normal or even superior intelligence, but it doesn't correlate with their apparent writing abilities. So they would have difficulty with a physical act of writing, you know, the letter formation, getting the words out, their words look sloppy, but it's also to do with getting their thoughts on paper. So they can explain the story to you and what they want to say, you verbalize it clearly. But the moment they put it down on paper, they can't get those words in order. They can't put it in paragraphs. They forget what they wanted to say. So they have a really difficult time organizing their thoughts on paper. So that act of getting, communicating on paper, on the, the orthographic side of it. Um, dysgraphia refers to... Graphia is from Greek word, which means um, the, the making letter forms by hand, and dis means impaired. So that's where dysgraphia comes from, the impaired ability to make letter forms by hand. The DSM-5 actually refers to it as a learning disability of written expression, um, but it's a little bit vague. <clears throat> it's a little bit vague. It doesn't specifically say, does it only stop with the act of writing? Or does it also include the content of what they're writing and how they organize that? So that's also one of the confusions there where you don't hear so much about it because it doesn't necessarily get diagnosed that often because you need to really be able to clarify what the difference between the two is as well. So um, that is basically what it comes down to. It's about the writing. And the other thing, how it differs from dyslexia, is dyslexia has a lot to do with her reading. So dyslexia would struggle a lot with her reading as well, where children with dysgraphia, their reading is great. You can give them a sentence in front of them and their reading is actually quite good. Not necessarily above average, but at least average compared to their ability to write. So the ability to, to um, put your language into code is where the, the problem comes from then. So it is the encoding of the language where dyslexia is the decoding, the one that you got the language and now you need to decode it into what that means. That is so interesting, hey? I mean, I always think as our kids are, um, you know, but both of them have like not really good handwriting, you know, like they seem, you know, and I don't know if it's a generational thing, but I know when like we grew up, I mean, writing was such a huge thing, you know, like all the way until like matric, you know, people like teachers would always criticize us on our writing, you know, your writing is terrible. <laughs> but now, I mean, I get, and I don't know, like, you know, with kids with iPads and all of that stuff, you know, it's almost like we over the writing thing until I speak to an OT and an OTs explain, you know, how important writing is in terms of fine motor and what it does to the brain and all of those things. Do you find yeah. it's a common thing though? It, it's very interesting that you would mention that because that is one of the comments you get is why is writing even important anymore? And it's much more complex than that. Writing is the ability to put your language and your thoughts into code. And uh, um, that is not only the act of writing. It's also the ability to type it on the computer. Um, that is also a very important part of it. But 
the, the language and writing process has, is multisensory. So you use your motor memory when you're writing as well. There have been studies that show that people actually um, write better when they're writing on paper compared to when they're typing it on a computer. Now, I, I, I'm not quoting these studies. I've heard about them. I haven't seen how they actually performed it, but it does make sense for me because when you are using your fingers to write it, you're actually using that muscle memory of what you're writing as well. And you're kind of living in what you are saying much better. So your comprehension of what you are writing is much better than when you are just putting it out into words and also your organizational skills of what you are writing down. You're not that impulsive. You have to think a bit more of what you're doing as well. Um, I have clients who have really, really hard time with writing and then their mom say, I just at least want them to be able to fill in a form one day. <laughs> so there's practical aspects of it as well. You need to be able to fill in that form and they've got all the correct numbers and the correct address. You can't fill it in and nobody can see what you wrote down there. Mm -hmm. So that is something that's not going to go away quickly. We need to be able to have some writing that we write down there as well. Yeah. To be able to do that, yeah. Uh, I say that with such a huge uh, smile on my face because, you know, even in the world where we are, you know, like, uh, you know, paperless and everything, you know, everyone talks about that, papaya, the whole thing. But there's always one form you have to fill in, eh? I mean, and, and so it's almost is a life skill. You know, like if you don't have that, if you're missing one of the key life skills, um, yeah. you know, if you can't do that well. Most yeah. definitely. And uh, um, I sometimes tell the children who don't have a neat handwriting, we don't all have to have a perfect handwriting. I say if that was a problem, most of our doctors would have huge problems <laughs> because we they don't necessarily have the tidiest of handwritings. And that's not what it's about. It's about the functional ability to communicate in writing what you want to say so that somebody else is able to read what you are writing. Hmm. I love what you said because I resonate with that as well. Because I, I mean, you know, when I think of writing, I always think of like these essays we had to write. Even at varsity, you know, I did economics as one of my subjects, and you always write, wrote and wrote, you know. And as you're writing, you're thinking. You know, you're always thinking about like what's the next sentence. You do as you're completing the sentence. It's almost like your brain is already okay. I'm done with that. You know, I'm going to the next one. Whereas now with devices and predictive text and stuff like that, you just like think it, and it's like you know, as you start writing it, it already completes it for you. So um, very different world. It's easy to write too much and miss mm. your point, mm. where if you know you have limited resources and limited time, you have to think about what you're saying to get your point across better. Um, and that's exactly some of the struggles with the children with dysgraphia. They really struggle with that organization of their thoughts when it comes to writing it down on paper. And then the comprehension of what they're writing gets lost because they were so focused on how do I get this onto paper that what they actually wanted to write gets lost in the process. And then it appears like they couldn't answer this question correctly or they couldn't get this essay, but actually the information was there. They just couldn't get it onto paper the way that they wanted to. Okay. And uh, Melanie, just to make this very clear, so it's not that they don't know what to do or, or say, it's like they understand it. It's just yeah. that they can't put it on paper you know when like, it, um, yes and when it comes to getting that thoughts that they have onto the paper there's a mismatch 
somewhere in between there, the message that they wanted to get across got lost. Um, and, and that is actually an anatomical difference in the brain. Um, they've been able to see where in the brain these differences are. And it's, it's not a lack of trying. Um, one, of the, one of the big things kids often get said is that they are lazy. They're just lazy to write it. And uh, um, that is so wrong to say that because mm. they are trying 10 times harder than the kid next to them. But mm. their results are 10 times less than them. And then they get so discouraged. And you can only try so many times till you start to feel like you want to give up. So, yes, there does come a point where they feel they want to give up trying. And that's not because of laziness. That's because they've been trying so long for so hard and nobody's been able to see that the difficulty they have compared to the difficulty that the other kids, for example, do not have compared to them. Thanks so much for saying that. And, and I think, you know, that in many ways, I think that's the amazing thing. You know, everyone talks about how the world's getting worse and stuff like that, but it's conversations like this and having people like yourself and like, you know, even what you just said now, because I remember a friend, I mean, like, you know, when we grew up together and he was in the same class for many years, but he always wrote slower and everyone equated that with like stupidity, you know, like he wasn't smart enough. But when it came to video games, he would, <laughs> he was like a rock star, you know, compared to the rest of us, you know, mere mortals. And, you know, and it was, you know, like that showed me for him, you know, it wasn't about intelligence. I mean, he could do that like really well. But when it came to writing, like I'm sure then, you know, based on this conversation, he probably had dysgraphia or, you know, something similar. And that's exactly one of the things which drove me <clears throat> into this field is because I could see these children with apparent intellectual abilities that are strong, but the schooling system says that they are not intellectually strong because they're not getting the marks that they should have. And I wanted to find out how can we help these kids to be able to show the world that they're actually capable of and that you do not measure um, the intelligence by the ability to write it or even to read it. Mm. Um, and, and like you said, knowing, knowing your friend, seeing him play with you, talking with him, you could see that that's not a match. It doesn't match with what his abilities are saying. But when it comes to the school and he's sitting in the class with all of his other kids and they're all being assessed in the same way, he does not feel that way. All he sees is that he feels he feels stupid because he's mm -hmm. not able to achieve what the other kids are able to achieve. And he doesn't know why. He doesn't understand why. Because why can they do that? Why can I play better computer games than he can, but he gets better scores at school than I do? I knew the answers. Why Why didn't the teacher see that? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that's, that's definitely a big part of why we do this, is to get those kids to realize that you – you are capable of it. We just need to get you a different way of showing that. Mm, okay. Coming to, I mean, I love this conversation, but coming to the question of like treatment plans. So how, how would you help a, uh, a client or a patient with dysgraphia? Oh, I almost want to sigh when you say that because <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's it's very complex and um, it's a long process as well. And there's so many variations. There's no silver bullet. There's no one way that you know is going to be the answer. Um, every client is different and you've got to know your client. You've got to know and assess where exactly are their difficulties, where what level is their 
difficulty? How much input can I get therapeutically to improve? And where should we maybe go to accommodations a bit earlier? And that is something that um, differs so much from client to client, but also you need the whole team involved. So the first thing is you don't work alone. You have a, a multidisciplinary team and part of that team is first and foremost the client. And um, the thing with dysgraphia is these are kids who are a bit on the older side in terms of they can already read and write. So they are either nine years old, eight years old, sometimes it's hard, you can't really do the formal diagnosis, but they're nine years old plus. So these kids already can see what's going on. They already have their own goals and aspirations and they can already compare themselves to others. So you want to show this child that this is what you can do. This is first and foremost, this is what you are battling. Um, it's okay. It's fine. You're not the only one. There are many other kids who have the same problems. And uh, um, this is what we can do about it. And we want to give him control to show him that this is what you can do to help us in this situation. So firstly, the kid is very important to have him on board or the client. And then the parents, because you as a therapist see them for a short time and then the parents see them the rest of time at home um, even after schools the parents that need to see them obviously the teacher as well but then your other disciplines that you involve is speech and language pathologists you'll have your physiotherapists you'll have your audiologists um, depending exactly on what's going on, optometrists as well, because um, their, their eyesight in terms of their eye movements is incredibly important. So firstly, if you can't see the paper, if you can't mm -hmm. see the board, obviously you're going to have a hard time writing. So the acuity part of vision is the easier one to assess. But when it comes to the eye movements, that's often overlooked. Um, and you need to go to an optometrist who's able to see the eye movements because many kids we've seen don't need glasses, but when they get to the right person, they realize, oh, you need some um, help with the eye movements as well. And the same with hearing. It's not a about just the ability to hear it's about the auditory processing as well so you once again you need somebody to help you with that aspect of hearing as well so if you can't see what you're writing on the board you're going to have a hard time if you can't hear language you're going to have a hard time so those are incredibly important as well but then when i say physiotherapist for example if there's underlying um, gross motor problems developmental gross motor delays or whatever else is going on there they can help a lot with that as well and um, speech and language therapists because often and it's either to do with pronunciation or to do with their language ability. There's also a big component to that. Um, and that also brings me to a little bit more about what dysgraphia is. It's not only the act of writing. It's not only that fine motor ability. It's also based in the language center of the brain. So it has to do with receptive and expressive language as well. So dysgraphia is, is um, often misunderstood as only the pencil grip and the writing itself. That is a part of it. Uh, a bigger other part as well is their language ability to express themselves. And um, because you will also find sometimes that, yes, they are intelligent, but they, 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 their language skills need some help as well. And that does come through to their, to their writing ability as well. Um, so to get back to your, 
your question on what you do is you get that whole team involved and uh, the occupational therapist plays a very big role in their fine motor and their visual motor integration. Um, most often I actually find that these kids have pretty good visual perception abilities and that's often where um, some occupational therapists get stuck because they, they're not finding their tests are saying that they're good. So why, why, if their visual perception is good, are they still struggling with this reading and writing? And that's where the language aspect comes in a lot as well. So um, to be able to help them with dysgraphia, you need to understand dyslexia as well and how you would help dyslexia because there's a lot of overlapping between the two and you would have a lot of similar approaches with the two as well. So, and, and some of those similar approaches are to do with, for example, if you're looking at the language aspect, you want to increase their encoding fluency, the fluency with which they are able to put this language into the written word. And that needs an explicit and a systematic approach. For example, you would break down language into smaller chunks and you would improve the fluency of those smaller chunks and then gradually increase it to larger chunks. So you would start, for example, when it comes to their phonemic awareness, their ability to identify small sounds in words and how that correlates to the grapheme. So for example, the sound f is a PH and the sound f can also be the F. So how does that correlate to the grapheme that they see and practice systematically helps that fluency to go faster, that automaticity to improve as well. And that eventually helps the organization of their thoughts so that they can get improve how they get that onto paper as well. Um, the other thing that um, children with dysgraphia struggle a lot with is the ability to visualize what they want to write down. So, they have these words as sounds in their head. They don't have them as code in their head, in the written code. So for example, um, and, and this is a, it's very similar for, for dyslexia as well. But if I ask you to think of tree, um, you might see the picture of a tree, but you are also able to see the letters, T-R-E-E. -E. You can see those letters. And if I ask you to think of the, there's no picture to it. So you can see the word that you can actually visualize in your brain. And that's part of the difficulty with dysgraphia. They're not able to visualize that code of this word that they just saw. And now we're expecting them to write it down on paper. Um, and, and that is where the treatment comes in as well. But like I said, you first need to work on all those building blocks. You need to make sure the vision and the, the, the auditory and the, the gross motor and even the psychological. I mean, these kids are often, they come with a burden of anxiety and low self-esteem and sometimes even depression. And those things play such a big role, not only in their willpower, but their ability to um, concentrate. That, that also plays a big role. And uh, um, the other big team member, of course, is um, if the child needs medical input. For example, dysgraphia very often coexists with other conditions like ADHD, like autism spectrum, often coexists with dyslexia. And um, sometimes they have immune or um, uh, uh, 
allergy reactions. So you really want to sort out medically what can you help this child with medically. For example, if you were to help them with their concentration levels, it will dramatically improve their writing ability as well because they now have the ability to organize their thoughts better um, to get that onto paper as well. And that's why I say it's complex because there are various causes of it and while you are working on the causes, you also want to help to them to practice that act of getting it onto paper as well and improve their fluency. So, um, mm. yes, like I said, no silver bullet, no one way. You've got to kind of um, um, change your direction as you go along as well to see which helps and what needs to be done. But I think, like I said, the most important part is to not work alone, but to, to use the team to, to get there. Mm, I love that. I love your answer and I love um, your explanation around it. And I, I know most healthcare practitioners cringe when we ask about that <laughs> because as you said very clearly, I mean, everyone are individuals and, you know, you can't generalize. I mean, even if you try to generalize, you know, someone is going to surprise you. So yeah. I, I get that. Um, but I suppose the, the purpose behind the question was, is the prognosis good? You know, like, and is there a plan? I think, you know, when any parent brings a child in at nine yeah. or 10, says, okay, you know, he's struggling. And then they see them as a 21-year-old. You know, are they going to be okay? <laughs> you know, can they fill out that form? You know, and I think what you answered was pretty good. You know, if, as long as you have that team, you know what, yes. like, what needs to be done. I think it's good. Is that, is that right? I find, I find often, um, like I said, the first team member is the client. I find that often just giving them this information and just clarifying this question of why um, helps that client already. So being able to see, oh, okay, this is what I've got, this is what I'm up against, and this is what I can do about it. And they help you problem solve along the way as well. Um, so then they can see, listen, this is, and this is also the boundaries of your problem. That's the other thing they want to know. Why am I struggling? Where, where is the struggle going to end for me? Um, and if they know, listen, it's limited to the writing and the ability to get it onto paper. The rest you're good at. Let's focus on what you're good at as well and maybe utilize that. Um, so it, it puts them more in a position of, I can do this and we can get it better. Mm, I love that. Um, on a side question, and I mean, I see it with our kids now. It's always interesting seeing that. But, you know, like we only learned like the times table, you know, by, you know, standard <laughs> or grade six. You know, now, you know, my little boy, grade two, you know, they already expected to know up to 12, you know, and is it like a shift in like how like kids, you know, children get taught right now? Because it seemed to be a lot more calmer. <laughs> you know, we still had to do our work, get good writing, all of those things. But it seemed to be like the, the milestones were a little bit more delayed then. Uh, do you find that as well? There's, there's definitely been a lot of changes and it's hard for me to really say um, how it's changed over time because I'm not a teacher and I haven't been for teaching for these years to see it change gradually. I can only compare it to my experience when I was at school. So that is what I knew when I was at school. This is what we did in grade one. This is what we did in grade two and grade three. And now my own daughter is nine years old grade three so i'm really in the midst of seeing how she's done the last four years and it was an absolute eye-opener for me when i saw how they are actually teaching kids to read and i was amazed to see that kids are actually able <laughs> to read 
from what they do to for them and um but what i did see is um they they are definitely requiring kids to write much much earlier um the grade r's and the grade the earlier than grade r's the five-year-olds are expected to often pick up a pencil and start writing letters and um, there is a potentially very big problem with that because they haven't been systematically taught the letters and they haven't been shown how do you form this letter so what happens is this four-year-old or five-year-old writes their own name some kids are lucky they've got a three-letter name some kids have a seven-letter name yeah. with a formation that is very far from correct, but you can see what's written there and everybody is so excited. And they keep doing that over and over and over again. And at a very early age, they are actually reinforcing incorrect letter formation. Now they come to grade R and for the first time, teachers showing them, okay, let's write the letter A. We start at the top and we go around and then we do the stripe. But this kid has got two A's in his name and he has been writing the letter A for the last three years by starting at the bottom and then doing the other one. And nobody's noticed, nobody's scared because he doesn't need to be able to do that yet. Now we are trying to break a habit that previously he was um, uh, celebrated for doing now we're trying to break it and it's like it's confusing him but i thought it was right now you're telling me it's wrong and uh, um, the motor memory in your hand is incredibly strong so if he's been forming the letter in that direction you are trying to change his motor memory which in a child who has dysgraphia which like i said is a brain-based difference that is harder for him to do so if he was explicitly taught the correct way of forming those letters from day one, it wouldn't have been so hard to try and change that incorrect habit with him. And also, um, the process of learning this, going through the language center, going through the, um, the Broca's area, the Wernick's area, the angular gyrus, those areas in the left hemisphere of our brain that we use, he has slight differences in how he does that. So once he's formed those nerve pathways for doing that, that is good for him and he's able to do that. And now you're coming and you want to change that. It's already hard for him to form that in the first place. And now you want to come and change that way of doing that. And that might be so hard for him that it's nearly impossible. So I see a lot of nine, 10 year old kids with such terrible letter formation that is so incredibly hard to change that we end up leaving it because it's not worth it. It's not worth trying to change that. Um, the reason I'm talking about letter formation, um, a lot of people have asked, but why is letter formation even important? Um, if you look at the printed language, we don't have any letters that start from the bottom. All of our letters start from the top. And most of them, when we do the circle, we do it anti-clockwise. Yes, anti-clockwise. I've got to think about that as well. Um, so what you have is you actually have consistency with how the letters are formed, which helps your fluency in writing and which helps your automaticity with what rate letter you are writing. So you don't have to think about it as much. But if you are writing the one letter from the top, and the other one from the bottom and the next one from the top again and now you are thinking for example the letter d 
If you want to write the letter D, you first start with a circle and then you do the stripe. If you're making the letter B, you first start with a stripe. So now if you're starting your letter from the bottom, which way are you going to go? Because not one of those ways start that way. Mm -hmm. And then it's very easy to confuse which letter you end up with. You might end up with a letter that you did not mean to write down. And so it all started with that consistency of how do you start your letters. Um, this, I'm a bit off topic now, but this brings me to cursive writing. Why cursive writing is often very efficient for kids with dysgraphia, because the starting point of the next letter is often already there. So after you finish the letter, your starting point for your next letter is already there. So you have to think less about how to form this letter. Yes, it's a bit of a difficult transition from print to cursive, but I've found with some kids that much prefer cursive writing because they need to use less um, working memory while they are writing because they don't have to think about which direction must this letter start now. Must I start at the bottom? Must I start mm. on the other side? Your pen is there no matter where you are going. <laughs> You've got to start at that position. Mm. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that is that is part of, of, of that, um, how you are able to help them with that. Mm. Sure, I would have never thought that, eh? I hated cursive writing. It was like my printed writing was like fine, but when it came to cursive, you know, because I couldn't write as fast, you know, as I could with like printed writing. And yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I also went through a long time of thinking, but why are they letting us do this useless exercise? Why are they even putting cursive writing out there in the world mm. until I realized there's actually for some kids that it has a big benefit. So I'm so glad that it actually is still in schools mm. because sometimes I get to the kids and we see they're really struggling with print writing and they say, we'd say, okay, let's trial cursive writing. Let's see how that works. And thankfully they've already done it in schools. They've already all done all the letter formations. So now we are able to see, can we get this words that you want out there into cursive writing? Let's give it a try. And some kids actually want to keep it. They actually enjoy doing the cursive writing. Wow. That's that. I would have never guessed that. Um, and we had this one teacher, English teacher, and she insisted, you know, that standard 10 or, you know, grade 12, she insisted that we do her her subject in cursive writing, you know, almost oh, everything. Yeah. yeah, and then it was like, how do you remember that? Especially when you're writing, you know, essays and stuff like that. No, oh, and that, and that would be absolutely detrimental to that child with dysgraphia who's possibly in your class because they, they don't necessarily have to have such a big problem with dysgraphia that they can't be in mainstream class. And mm. for him, who's only just managed print, has in this class needs to do cursive writing. So what his his class scores, is it related to his content of what he's writing or is it because of the fact that he's got to do cursive writing? So that's, mm. that's actually, it's, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's one of the ways in which you need to have the teachers as part of your team so that they can be informed that this is detrimental to this child to ask him to do that. And you need to be able to allow him to not do it that way um, and have that compassion for that child. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, like that, uh, Milani, that, that's been one of the rewarding things of doing the show for me. I mean, firstly, I mean, some of the words I would have, I mean, you threw a few just now when you were talking about the brain. I mean, like uh, that went you know, way above me. But, you know, it's like all of those things. And I found like even in the, in the schooling system, you know, there's these arb rules, arbitrary rules, you know, that they come up with and you, you know, there's no thought pattern behind it. 
But yeah. I think the more you know, the more, you know, like even that teacher, I mean, I loved her class. But I think if she knew, I still remember her name, you know, if she knew what we're talking about now, I don't think she would have said that, you know, like, or, or made that as one of the rules. But in yeah. her mind, you know, that's how, you know, it's supposed to be. Whereas yeah. it wasn't the case with Afrikaans and, you know, like history, I didn't do history, but uh, physics and stuff like that, you know, it obviously wasn't the case. Um, yeah. Because, because teachers are there for the kids. They want to help them. Hmm. And um, if you can give them the tool to be able to help these kids, they will definitely welcome that information. Hmm. I do want to throw a strike, strike a, a curveball though. So my, because my boy's left-handed and yes. I find, <laughs> and I, I still remember one of, you know, one of the, we used to do lots of the conferences, you know, going presenting for our software and stuff to get. And uh, I would sit in and obviously listen to the talks and the one, um, I think it was an OT was talking about, uh, you know, left-handed, you know, like, and how different it is in the brain. Do you find yeah. with writing that that's, like even more of a challenge because they That's because they do their stuff differently you know like where we would pull you know on a letter they would push you know as yeah. an example most definitely they've got different challenges and uh, um it's something that i don't know enough about and i've recently also realized that there's definitely some more underlying research into this that would be very enlightening but uh, um like you mentioned they are writing from left to right, but their hand is going all over their letters. Hmm. I, I've noticed with my own, I've got a lot of whiteboard activities that we do. And then I start with the left hand uh, and then I realize, oh yeah, I can't do this with him. He's just erasing everything hmm. he's doing. It's such a difficulty for him to even hold the pencil in the correct way. Um, concentrating on what you want to say, concentrating on the direction of what you're writing. And now you've got to concentrate to lift up your hand so that you're not erasing what you're doing as well. It's just adding that extra dimension that they do not need. Mm. So yes, that definitely is something that is more challenging for them. Um, what What's very interesting for me as well is, uh, um, again, there was some research that there's been so much research on dyslexia but so little on dysgraphia. But one of the dyslexia researchers showed that um, uh, it was a very big research that showed that up to around 20% of the population have dyslexia, which is a huge, it's huge. Mm. Um, but it's because dyslexia also is on a continuum, on a spectrum. You'll have very light dyslexia and you've got your severe dyslexia and often it's only the severe dyslexia that are picked up the light dyslexia is not picked up and identified for what it is they're just thought to be slow readers they're just thought to be slow learners but actually they are battling with a condition that you can do something about to improve but this um that, that one of the researchers also showed that of these 20 percent 50 percent of those were left-handers now, that is something that I first want to see more about how did they do this research. Mm. But um, there is something that I can believe that there must be something um, true about it because the language center of the brain is in the left hemisphere. 
and your left hemisphere is connected to your right side of your body and your right hemisphere connected to your left side of your body. So what happens with a left-hander when he's writing is actually activating his right side of his brain much more because of the cross in the brain. Mm. And our right side of our brain is more um, related to our creativity, our intuition, our insight, um, and our left side is more our language, more the mathematics, more the okay. kind of like the scientific part of the mm -hmm. brain. Um, but obviously, you need both sides of your brain. You need to mm. utilize both sides of the brain. Um, so if the child has dyslexia, there is a different way of using the left side of the brain. I can imagine that the left-hander would have an additional challenge or a different type of challenge. Um, and the same with exactly dysgraphia. So if they are writing with their left hand, if there is already an anatomical difference in the left side of their brain and they are using the right side of their brain to compensate for it or using it in a different way, I can imagine that anatomically it does have a difference as well. But like you said, it even has a, a difficulty with the practical implications. For example, the scissors. You have many people who are left-handers. Um, one of my friends as well, she says to this day she can't cut very well because nobody knew what scissors they were giving her. And <laughs> I find it with myself. I've got a left-hand scissors and I've got a right-hand scissors in my practice. And if I don't mark them very clearly, if I take the wrong scissors and I have to try with this hand and then try with this hand and then I get so confused then later on I don't know what hand scissors this is anymore so mm -hmm. for that child who's left-handed who's been given the wrong scissors all their life it's very hard for them in that sense to to correct that themselves and the same with the writing forming that letter left way around where the teacher is showing it with her right hand they've got to kind of switch it around in their brain i'm pulling my letter teacher's mm. pushing her letter so it definitely brings an additional level of complexity for those kids mm. yeah i mean it's been fascinating uh, for me to watch but you know even like copying stuff so you know the teacher would give it and you know as a right hand the, the, the you know the writing to be copied is on the left hand side so yes. it's easy but as a left hander you you're basically blocking the copy. So yes. you're trying to remember what it was rather than copying exactly. it. And, and you've got to like remember what you just wrote as well because you can't see your own words. Your hand exactly. is on top of them. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, we're trying to explain that to the teacher, you know, like, and, and it's like simple things like that that I think is, is like massive. You know? and, and it also brings me to um, hand dominance um, because establishing the hand dominance of the child is so important. Um, many children go longer time before they establish their hand dominance so they switch from left to right left to right um, often because they've got difficulties with midline crossing they might have some integrated primitive reflexes that are not fully integrated yet um, which is possibly the reason why they're struggling with midline crossing but you'll have that child switching from left hand to right hand from left hand to right hand and they're not getting ample opportunity for that motor memory that comes from that one hand and is going to the same area of the brain because they are switching between the two. So uh, um, establishing their dominance, their hand dominance early is, is also very important for them. And those kids who 
had a developmental delay, um, who in grade R and grade one were still switching hands, they definitely also have a harder time to be able to, to do that. And which also in the end appears like dysgraphia, maybe is part of dysgraphia. Um, it's one of those things where there's so much more to learn about how these things impact each other. Yeah, I love that. I mean, uh, I think uh, you mentioned the magic word as well, scissors, because uh, <laughs> that one took me by surprise having children as well. Because again, you know, you don't think of these things. I mean, I don't think anyone, you know, of our teachers mentioned it. But um, I know with our little girl, I mean, she was like three or four or so, and we get the you know call from the teacher or in the in the review, and you know, and then it's like you know, the one thing that you know she struggles with is her cutting skills. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what <laughs> so you know you have to do exercises can you explain to us why that's so important okay so that's quite interesting um if you look at how you hold the scissors um you would have the scissors through your fingers and it's touching your hand while you're doing the cutting now that is a task of visual motor integration. So your eyes and your hands have to work together to be able to do the action that you want them to do. But it's got also a lot to do with the position of your arm, um, is your, your posture. Uh, a lot of those things need to be in place for you to be able to do that. So the act of cutting is not a problem. It's why are they struggling with that? Why is this not as easy for them? Is there something else underlying that is difficult for them? So yes, obviously it's nice to be able to cut with the scissors that exactly what you want to do it, but that is not such a functionally important thing to be able to achieve. It's more as to why are they struggling with cutting? Is there something else that is limiting them? And when I mentioned about the scissors that's in your hand, you'll for example have the grasp reflex. It's a primitive reflex that babies are born with, that if you put something in their hand, they'll automatically close their hand and they don't yet have the ability to open that hand. But as babies grow, they need to lose that reflex. They need to integrate that reflex so that they have got more control about opening their hand. Now, when you are cutting with the scissors, you've got something pushing inside your hand, but you have to open and close, open and close at exactly the right times with exactly the right amount of pressure in the right directions. So if something like that is not fully integrated, that it's also going to be able to affect you and um, and that grasp reflex is also something that we often see with the kids with dysgraphia especially when it comes to holding their pencils um, you know the correct that we say the correct but the most efficient way of holding your pencil is the tripod grip where you'll have two fingers on the side and you'll have the one finger at the back and your pencil has to lie on your web space which is that circle above your thumb um, and then you'll have the most amount of movement in your fingers so that you can use the least amount of muscles so your fingers do the, the tiny tiny little muscles they do all the movement you don't have to use your whole arm to be able to do this movement so it's a much more efficient way of writing so you don't get as tired while you are writing you don't have to hold your pencil as strong now, the moment you hold that pencil in a different way, you're using much more muscles. You may be using muscles of your arm and your shoulder that you don't need to. So you are getting 
tired much more easily while you're doing that as well. Um, and the kids with a grasp reflex, they find it really hard to have their own fingers in their hand and have the pencil pushing against their hand. So what happens is they put less fingers in their hand, more fingers on top of the pencil. And uh, I often find the kids who've got all five pen fingertips on the pencil because they don't want that pencil touching their hand. <laughs> They've got their fingertips on the pencil and absolutely nothing of that pencil is touching their hand. And it's the only way that they've been able to hold that pencil and write these letters down. Now you can imagine with a pencil grip like that, you are concentrating so hard to use all of these muscles that need mm -hmm. to be able to write. Now you've got to think about what you are writing as well. And come to paragraph number five, your hand is exhausted and mm -hmm. you are not able to think about the content of what you're writing as well anymore at all. So like I said, these things, they all interplay. Mm. They all have a small part to play, but sometimes you can't change that pencil grip and it's not worth it. It's it's not worth trying to change this extremely well-established pencil grip. Mm. Let's just go with it and see what else can we do and what, what other accommodations or what other areas we can work on as well. Mm. You know, it's discussions like this that always make me so appreciative of our of the human body and like how complex it is, hey? Because like something so slight, you know, um, you know, that could go wrong and, you know, it affects so many different things. I mean, like, yeah, it's, it's exactly. incredible. So, to, so, it. so to, to get back to your point on the scissors, where if a teacher says they're not cutting well, you think, oh, but why do they need to cut well? Yeah. Exactly. They don't need to cut well, but it's not yeah. about that. It's about what is the reason they are not either yeah. are struggling with this, this, this act of cutting. Mm, yeah. Um, I think we didn't have to go too far down that route, but I mean, I, I can kind of see the logic now because then that was a recommendation to an OT, uh, which was actually a friend of mine. Well, you know, another parent in the class was telling us, you know, he had, they had to do OT, um, which was, you know, like, which was good, I think. Yes. So, but again, explaining that, you know, to a parent that doesn't know anything about this, <laughs> you know, because in our mind, we're, even now, as I say it, I mean, obviously, I know a lot more, you know, by speaking to amazing people like yourself. But, um, you know, at that point, she didn't explain why, you know, it was such an issue for our daughter, you know, not to be able yes. to cut. Well, um, yes. yeah, so which was interesting. And, and often, um, it's difficult to verbalize that. Um, because the teacher feels that something is different and all she can put a finger on is the cutting. So it's, uh, she, she, it's hard for her to say why does she feel it's needed, but she knows that, that at least she knows that the cutting is, is not what it's supposed to be. And it's the, it's the intuition that often helps us. Teacher has intuition of seeing that something is different. And even though they can't put, put all the pieces together, um, it's a starting point of seeing, okay, what else, what else are we looking at here? Mm, I said that, I think you said that well too, because I think that's the thing you can't replace, you know, a teacher, you know, um, sees so many like students through the class, maybe through many yes. years that I love that, you know, that intuition, you know, something is not quite right, you know, like this doesn't seem, you know, quite, quite correct. Mm. Yes, yes. Like and she wants to know how else can we help this child? What else can be done? Mm. And with dysgraphia, Milani, is there other symptoms? I mean, I, I think simplistically in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, if they can't write properly, you know, like that's probably, you know, like an immediate, like, uh, you know, obviously that's something there. Is there anything else that they present with um, where it would give you an idea? 
Um, because dysgraphia is often um, coexists with other conditions, it's very rarely completely only on its own. It would be quite interesting um, to, if there were to be more research into this, and it might be somebody with uh, a lot of experience into this to be able to to comment on that. But one of the things that is definitely a big part of that, it's it's easy to think it's only to do with the writing, but it's to do with that child's self-esteem self -esteem as well. That is, that is one of the big things, I think. A child who appears to be lazy, a child who is actually full of anxiety and depression and poor self-esteem. And um, I think that is, that is another big system, um, a, a, another big symptom that's obviously because of the dysgraphia as well. But it doesn't help the child exceed if they've got this additional um, poor self-esteem and and all of that to, to work against as well. So uh, that is also often if you, it's not maybe as clear that their writing is not as great, but this child knows deep inside them that something is not right and they're not able to to show what they are capable of. But, um, and that's one of the things with, with the diagnosis of dysgraphia is that it is more limited to the writing where dyslexia, the other symptoms or the reading as well, and the other symptoms of word finding difficulties <clears throat> and word fluency and, and all of that, where dysgraphia is a little, little bit more limited to the encoding of what they are, what they are trying to say. Um, but I, I can also, like I say, I can only tell you what I know, and I'm pretty sure there's much more information in other symptoms. I would love to know what other symptoms also often go with dysgraphia. Mm, yeah. I think with most things, you know, it's like if you know where to look, then you start looking a little bit deeper. And I think that's the reason, you know, for, for doing this as well. So like, you know, when parents listen to this, they're like, oh, okay, cool. Now at least I have an, a name or a term. You know, now I can start looking at it a little bit more. Um, yes. But leading on to that is, are there any particular resources? I mean, so if someone listened to this, you know, a parent or a teacher and said, sure, that's interesting. You know, what Milani said, you know, like I would like to find more or learn more. Um, are there any specific books, resources that you came across that, that are more parent or non-practitioner friendly? Yes. I actually, when, um, when I knew you were going to ask that question, I tried to go look and what can I, what resources can I tell you about there? And I'm actually, I've had a hard time myself finding resources. So um, I've had a hard time trying to recommend any resources because like I say, there's actually very little research out there on this and it's a lot of um, experience based and opinion based the information out there so getting snippets from various resources is a great starting point because it helps you to see what do you identify with and what don't you identify with because there is also a lot of information out there that is a bit misleading so uh, to be able to say okay who do I listen to and who I don't listen to? What's very important is if you get articles and you get webinars and you get those things on somebody saying something about dysgraphia is to ask the question is, who is this providing it and why are they qualified to provide it? Um, and uh, some of the, the, the information out there that I find valuable um, is from the International Dyslexia Association, the IDA. 
um, they are based in America, I think, and they've got a lot of different organizations in different countries in America as well. And there's, there's a lot of valuable information I found from them as well. Um, a few about dysgraphia, more about dyslexia, but like I said, the two have so much similarities that it's knowing more about dyslexia is going to help you to understand more about dysgraphia as well. Um, in terms of um, getting more information about that, I suggest Googling, climbing on the internet, and just seeing who is the source of where you are getting your information. There is a lot of powerful YouTube videos out there. I found some lovely podcasts as well. Um, if your speakers are somebody who's knowledgeable, who is experienced, um, that really helps with that as well. Um, when it comes to dysgraphia, because it's such a big field in the writing, in the fine motor, the visual motor integration, the visual perception. Occupational therapists have got a lot of background knowledge into those foundations. So you will definitely, if it's if it's coming from them, there's a lot of good foundational information that you will be able to get on that as well. And like I said, if it's a foundation or organization that also specializes in dyslexia, you'll be able to get some good information about dysgraphia as well. Okay, that sounds pretty cool. Uh, I like that. Answer, sorry, but <laughs> I know, I know. I yeah, yeah. I, I think practitioners cover themselves really well with these two questions that we that you know. One is the therapy process. I mean, uh, I think that's standard. You know, everyone says, you know, like is very you know conservative with that, with good reason. And I think with this as well. And and I think also, I mean, I said it a few times, but. Also, that's the reason for doing this is because I, you know, we could take anyone to be on the show, but I think the fact that it comes from practitioners that are working with that area of interest has some weight to it. And I think, you know, the unfortunate thing is like not everyone has an academic basis. So like not everyone knows that they need to look at the latest research or look at credible sources. So, you know, when you go to Google and it comes up in your first three results, you, you know, most people believe those things because, you know, that is credible. Um, but it's not, you know, you always have to look at that. For example, if you were to read a blog about a mother who's got a very good following blog in America and her own experiences, take that for what it is, take her experience, um, but be careful of opinions and look, if, you, if you're looking to get information, look at the sources of, of where you're getting it. Mm. And if they're trying to make generalizations or standardizations, you know, that's, that's you know, difficult or dangerous yes. I would think yes. um, and also if somebody claims to have the silver bullet or the five-step answer yeah. um, stay away from those <laughs> yeah yeah definitely it's, not it's, now Black Friday stuff <laughs> yes <laughs> it's complex there is no quick way um, so don't be fooled by promises of being able to um, solve dyslexia and solve dysgraphia in, in a few short weeks it's unfortunately a little bit more complex than that mm, yeah uh, but something tangible, Milani? I mean, like, so as a parent, I mean, like, other than booking an appointment with you and in your busy schedule, and you did say you do Zoom sessions, so, I mean, I think it's open to anyone. Um, but, and we'll have your details in the, you know, in the show notes. But other than that, is there anything as a parent that they could do to work with their child? Um, I think they would obviously need to speak, you know, speak to a professional like yourself, even if it was not just you, you know, maybe an OT that specializes in this. But is there anything that a parent could do with their child? 
Definitely. Um, fortunately, dysgraphia is um, quite a fun, fun way of, of helping them as well, because one of the most efficient ways is if you were to go multi-sensory. Now, that means utilizing all your senses when they are learning and, and, the, and dysgraphia is the writing. So, for example, drawing, and this is very well known, but drawing into sand, drawing the letters and the words into sand, into foam, into clay, um, using sandpaper, drawing with crayons on the ground. You are using the senses, you're using the textures, you're using the sounds, you're using the smells. Um, when I say sound, it sounds differently to write on sandpaper than it does to write in foam, for example. Mm. Um, you're using the muscle memory for that. Sky writing, for example, writing the letters in the sky. Closing your eyes and visualizing seeing the letters before you're writing them down. Um, when one of the one of my favorite techniques with the kids, um, I, I use it until they get a bit bored and then we do something else and we try to get back to that. But it's so powerful is a visualization technique where if I am working on a specific let's say section, um, let's say it be a phoneme or it be a combination of phonemes or it be a spelling rule, then we would visualize a nonsense word. For example, I would say the word flop it. Okay, uh, we, and then I ask them, I would write it down for them and they would say, close your eyes and tell me what is letter number two and letter number five. And they've actually got to visualize that word and they can use their fingers to count, but I want them to see that word in their brain. And you can go gradually more complex, but it's the best to use that word um, with exactly the the, the technique they are currently learning. And especially, for example, if in school they are now learning to write words with a V or an F, for example, in Afrikaans, which is a very difficult one, which ones are spelled with a V, which ones are spelled with a F, mm. visualize it. Let's write that, take that word, close your eyes, visualize it. Tell me what is letter number three, what is letter number five, what is letter number one. Um, it helps them to establish what they're seeing in their eyes, um, in their brain, before writing it down and then using the rest of their multisensory um, approach with the foam or the sand or the whatever it is. We use bird seeds, we use glitter, um, whatever is fun for them at that stage. Um, so that's part of a, a nice fun way of doing that as well. And really um, knowing what your child is doing at school and whatever their homework is for that week and building on that because you are using what they're already learning at school and you're just giving it another layer of emphasizing what they are doing as well. And um, the other big thing is to make sure that their letter formation from the start is correct mm. because it's so easy to not notice how the children are starting the letters from the bottom or they're making the circle wrong way around, starting the O from the bottom, for example, because they are used to starting the letters from the bottom. Um, so if the mom can early on notice this at home, because teacher is not sitting next to your child all day in school, they do not necessarily notice that your child is making those letters the wrong way around, but at home you can. Mm. So um, very early on, making sure that they are getting their foundations correct um, is going to help them a lot in the later years. Okay. That was amazing. Uh, we do have to start closing up now. And uh, I do want to say, you know, thanks so much for doing this. But um, 
Is there anything that you thought I should have asked you around dysgraphia that you know we that we didn't? I know, I know. I mean, again, this was you know because it's almost an hour now, and I don't think we would have done justice to that topic, you know, in an hour. But all that we wanted with this was, you know, to put, the, you know, what it is out in the world, and also, you know, to put, you know, a, a much more professional approach to it. You know, like you know, coming from yourself as a healthcare practitioner. But is there anything that springs to mind that you thought I should have asked you that I didn't? I, I think I tried to get what I wanted to say in between your questions, even though you didn't ask them. <laughs> but I think if there's a take out, um, I think the most important thing is for parents and professionals and teachers, anybody working with these kids, is to realize that they are not lazy. Um, because when I hear those words coming from a parent, I've heard them from a practitioner, I've heard them from teachers, it makes my heart sink into my shoes because kids don't want to be lazy. They are masking something. They're masking their struggles. They are trying to cope in this world. They are naturally competitive. They want your approval. They want to achieve. So if they are not, and if they are being lazy, it appears that they are being lazy, it's because they are having a hard time with something and they need your help to be able to identify what it is that they are being lazy with. And I'm saying being lazy in, in quotation marks. Mm -hmm. um, and how can you help them to get out of that and to feel confident again, to build their self-esteem and to be able to empower these kids, to show them that, look, I see your struggle. This is what it is. This is how we are going to help you together with this and to give them that power in their hands to say, this is what you can do about it. And you are not, um, you're not a helpless victim, if I can call it that. You are empowered. This is your life. You can take control of it and you can feel better about yourself. Mm, I love that. I did have one ask and I think, you know, think about it. I mean, like at some point, it would be amazing to have a course, you know, from practitioners like yourself on dysgraphia. Um, you know, I ask this from every practitioner, but, you know, even if we, even if we label that, you know, quality time with kids, you know, <laughs> because you take, you know, all of those beneficial things that you talk about, you know, glitter and sand and stuff to get. And if parents could do that, like you said, you know, yeah. I think there, there's definitely, you know, a need for that stuff because we don't know, you know, like, <laughs> we don't know what to do. So we just like do, you know, what we, exactly. what we think. Uh, one of the, one of the lovely things about working one-on-one -on -one with kids is I can have 50 ideas a day mm. and tomorrow I've got different 50 ideas. And by next week, I've forgotten those 50 ideas. So <laughs> <laughs> we need to, um, if we are able to package what we do together that mm. would be great um, and I would love to even go and listen to what somebody else does as well but it's it's not as easy as it sounds to be able to to do something like that but mm. I agree with you it's definitely something that helps so many people and um, it's definitely there's a big need for that definitely mm. again thanks for doing this thanks for your time um, this was a blast thank you so much thank you Oliver Hey everyone, thanks for listening. As always, stay tuned and we'll speak to you in the next episode. <laughs>